What a great song. Hope you're listening and just engaging in, in, those, in those words and the, you know, just the concepts, the truths in that. That's, that's super, super powerful. You know, I was thinking as we were worshiping together just a moment ago, uh, how grateful I am for our worship team, those that you see up here on the platform today and all those that participate in all the other Sundays. Would you just share your appreciation for them and their labor and their hours? As many of you know, um, we've just surpassed the one-year anniversary of Patrick's time with us. Yes, you can, you can appreciate that. And as a lot of you know, uh, when Patrick and Amanda and their family moved to Dothan, they moved into a home that, as they found out after the fact, needed some significant repairs to make it livable. Uh, well, they have just returned to that home as of this week. And to bless them and encourage them and to recognize their anniversary with us, um, we're going to do a pounding. Now, not the old kind where you bring those old cans of green beans and stuff that you had in your cupboard for, for decades. But the digital kind, so we're going to ask if you'd bring some gift cards to just honor them, bless them, encourage them. And we're going to uh, collect those and then give those to Patrick and Amanda next Sunday night after our PM service. So we're going to have a, just a simple reception down here at the Rock after our worship service in the sanctuary, and we'll be able to share those with him. So I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll participate in that, and that'll be, that'll be a blessing to them. All right, do this. Buckle your seatbelts because we're going for a ride today. In this text, no time for anecdotes, clever illustrations, personal stories. It's a short text. There are only two verses here. But as I was sharing with someone on the walk over, the more time I spent in this, the bigger the subject got, the deeper the well, um, the more necessary the, the concepts to be discussed. So settle in with us for a moment because I want us to consider some things. And we're going to spend a good bit more time today in context and background and introduction than we normally do. But I don't want you to miss, I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. So then we're going to circle back to how this passage, which may seem for you, for us collectively, not particularly relevant. We're going to circle back to how incredibly relevant it is for all of us and its impact on the very mission that God has given us, the declaration of Christ, making Christ known in what we call the gospel. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that you grant us all wisdom and discernment. I pray that you grant us understanding. I pray that you would enlighten us. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word that we would see and know and appreciate and do. I pray you change the affections of our hearts. I pray you convict us of sin and, and release us from its power. I pray you cause us to think well and rightly and deeply. And I pray you spur us to action, all those things. Lord, I pray in just short order, in the limited time that we've allowed for ourselves to gather today, I pray we learn and in knowing, Father, become more like Christ, our Savior, more obedient to you, more in line with your will. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak, we would hear, respond, you'd be honored with our obedience, that these would be words of life for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, 
so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So today I want to talk to you about the church, the Bible, and slavery. The church, the Bible, and slavery. Let me set the text up this week and what I'm going to share on it, or set it up this way. There are several ways that we can mishandle the text. Now, most weeks, I I don't address all the wrong ways that we could look at a text. Uh, That would take too long, and it wouldn't be particularly fruitful or worth your time or mine. But today, I think it's important, because these are some of the ways that I've seen the text, I believe, mishandled. So these are some ways we can handle this wrongly. Number one, we can look at that text, and we can simply reduce it. We could reduce it to mean something less than it really does with less impact than it really ought to have. I do some Googling. I do some background. I do some research. Um, I don't really take the time or have the time to listen to a lot of sermons, but I'll read them because I can read faster than I can hear. And I'll look up what people have said or written. I found um, an inordinate number of discussions on this text that have reduced it to something just about employment. How you should be as a boss, how you should be as an employee. That's reducing this text too far. It means more than that. It doesn't mean less than that, as we'll come to in a moment, but it means more than that. Number two, we can misunderstand it. We can look at this text and we can say, well, that must not be talking about what I think it's talking about. Again, I'm not privy to all the translations that are in the room. But the word bondservant, yoke is bondservant, is rightly rendered, if your translation says, slavery. Anyone who is under the yoke as a slave, if you have the translation slave or slavery, it's the right translation. We can misunderstand the text and, again, think it means something that it doesn't. Number three, we can can misapply it. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment, how generations of Christians before us trying to do And I'm not apologizing for what I think is their error in application and understanding. Try to do what the scriptures were saying. They they try to be faithful to the text using these, and they misapplied it. Or we can look at this today, and we can simply disregard it, because we say this just doesn't apply to us anymore. There are no conditions anymore in which there are bondservants or slaves and masters. That slave-master relationship doesn't exist anymore, so we can just disregard the text. Why are we even spending a sermon on this? I'm having some real problems this week in my life. I wish you would address them. Let's move on. Those are four wrong ways of handling the text. Now, some pressing questions, I think, as we look at the text, and if these aren't your pressing questions, then bear with me because they were at least mine. And as the staff discussed the text, these were some of our questions. First big question I think you probably would want to know is, does the Bible affirm slavery? I mean, you don't have to look very far on the interwebs to find people who are opponents of God, deniers of Scripture, that will use passages like this one as some sort of evidence that the Bible is not, in fact, the good book. And, in fact, it's not even a good book because it gives its affirmation of slavery. And how can this possibly be good if the Bible is affirming slavery? Does the Bible affirm slavery? Well, there are a couple of principles here, and I'm not going to delve too deeply into this because this will take all of our time, but I do want to hit a few critical points. When we ask the question, does the Bible affirm slavery, the answer ultimately is no. It acknowledges it without affirming it. It governs certain aspects of it without condoning it. 
there's a principle that all of us need to recognize every time we read the Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. We need to make a distinction when we see something that is, is this something that is being described to us, or is this something being prescribed for us? And the Bible contains both. Is this what is, and it's just there, and we're hearing what it is, or are we being told to live like this, think like this, act like this? A good example might be uh, Job. Job had some religious counselors, you may remember if you're familiar with the book, and they gave Job some religious advice. We're not told in each of those statements and conversations that what they said was wrong, and here's why it was wrong. The Bible is not written that way. It just is. But we know in the wider context, and we see Job's own understanding and the response of God later on in the text, what they're saying was, in fact, inaccurate. It was a description, not a prescription. We see polygamy in the Old Testament, and polygamy was a common practice in the ancient world. Is that something that's prescribed for us then? Well, there are certain religious sects in America that believe it is, or at least allowable to us. But we say, no, why? Because it's described, not prescribed, and brings the second principle. There's something in Scripture called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation teaches us at least this. As we work our way through the Scriptures, beginning with the Old Testament, working our way all the way to the end, we're learning more and more and more with greater and greater clarity the who and what of God and Christ and His plan for the world. We're seeing it unfolding more and more and more. We see more in the epistles than we saw in the judges. We see more in the letters of Paul than we saw in the Pentateuch in those first five books. This progressive revelation that we see again and again and again. And then the terminology. The Greek word that we use here for slave, again, translated slave, sometimes servant, sometimes bondservant, often referred to a group of people that actually had a surprising level of standing in that culture. Highly educated, influential, sometimes, as surprising as this, as this sounds, affluential. They did have compensation even though they didn't have freedom, they had social standing. Most of them were not slaves from their birth. Most of them were not slaves uh, or in fact, rarely, if ever, would they have been slaves for their race. Many of them, if not most of them, were simply slaves from conflicts, wars, or they chose slavery because of personal debt, and they chose as a way out, a means out. Now, I want to be clear that in every measure, in any sense, human slavery, subjugation of one person by another, violates the standards of Scripture. I think that's clear in Scripture. Um, there are some harsh passages we have to deal with. But even as we look at this text, if we look at it honestly, there's a big difference between the sort of slavery that we see, for instance, with Abraham and his chief servant and the sort of horrors that we would see in a film like 12 Years a Slave. These are, sort of, these are different connotations. It doesn't answer the question that I'm going to answer in a moment, but it does frame the discussion a bit better, that we may not be talking about exactly the same things. So it doesn't affirm, it does acknowledge... We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Number two, were there many Christians that came before us who were wrong on the subject? I mean, have there been Christians before us that were just simply wrong on this? And the answer is, is yes. I mean, emphatically so. People that we admire and respect whose writings have been so greatly influential to us, to what we believe, to what we practice, sometimes seem to have had a glaring blind spot in this area. An example, the Puritan Cotton Mather sought to provide biblical support for American slavery, American chattel slavery, the slave trade. 
He collected biblical passages wherever he could find references to slavery and the practices of slaveholding. He wrote, and I say this inoffensively, I hope, a book called A Set of Rules for the Society of Negroes. Among other things, he argued that slaves who disobeyed their masters were to be beaten and barred from the church. Now, he believed in evangelizing them. He would speak of or write of treating them fairly, but he supported, he defended American slavery. Baptist pastor Richard Fuller used the, the Bible to defend the institution of slavery. After practicing law, graduating from, with a law degree, he became a Baptist minister, led churches in South Carolina and Maryland. In, in 1847, Pastor Richard Fuller and Brown University President Richard, I mean Francis Whalen, co-published Domestic Slavery Considered as a Scriptural Institution. And this was a debate, an argument. The heart of the matter came down to this simple question. Is slavery, as we see practiced around us, a sin? Wayland argued that it was. Fuller disagreed. And maybe the most confounding for us and most perplexing, and one of the questions I have most, I can remember sitting in a conference with other pastors, and I was quoting my, my favorite American theologian, the person who I think has brain power as a theologian, a capacity unlike any American before or since, and that's Jonathan Edwards. Some of the things he's written have influenced my thinking on theology and God and the love of God and the heart of God more than anyone, only to discover that, that Edwards owned slaves and at least supported or in some degree endorsed the institution of slavery. In George Marsden's epic autobiography of Edwards, he writes about Jonathan Edwards' ambivalence, his deep ambivalence towards the institution of African slavery. His main argument was that using your neighbor's work without giving them wages was not in itself sinful since the Bible allowed slavery. And if the Bible would not contradict itself, and the Bible temporarily winked at some practices, which it later forbid, like polygamy, then slavery was not condemned. And since the New Testament didn't address it emphatically or specifically as condemned, then he supported it. Edwards would write that people are equal before the eyes of God, whether African or Indian. They were spiritually equal and, and in need of God's salvation and equally able to respond to God's grace. Nonetheless, he, he wrote of its support. Edwards, at the same time, recognized some of the inconsistencies of the abolitionist positions of his day. If it were wrong to partake in the system immediately, he wrote, then it would also be wrong to partake in it remotely. Edwards was sharp enough to see that it's not only the owning of slaves, it's the purchase and use of materials procured by the labor of slaves that indicted us in the guilt of slavery, caused us to participate in. Edwards' position was that many steps would need to be taken to eradicate slavery. And his final summation was that in a world filled with sin, it's impossible to keep yourself from benefiting from the evils and the evil deeds of others. Now, was Edwards wrong on slavery? Was Cotton Mathers wrong on slavery? Was Richard Fuller wrong on slavery? The answer is emphatically yes, they were. They misinterpreted and misapplied Old Testament passages. They conflated conditions and circumstances of Old Testament first century in the New Testament and American chattel slavery as being similar things. Was they wrong? Yes. Were they wrong? Yes. Did they miss the mark on this subject? Yes. So on what basis might we declare today if the consensus among us or the unanimous position among us is that slavery is wrong? On what basis would we declare that? Well, I'm going to go back not to a 
new argument but to an old one. Again, back to the argument between Richard Fuller and Dr. Wayland. Francis Wayland made this case in 1847, and I think his case stands the test of time, so I'm going to give you his four principles. One, he says slavery is a clear violation of Matthew 19, 19, of loving your neighbor as yourself. It's impossible to love your neighbor as yourself and then have them enslaved to you under your bondage, under your yoke, not grant them personal freedom, number one. Number two, Old Testament slavery can better be explained in the context of Israel's unique place in history. So God gives Israel the nation of Canaan or the place of Canaan, involve the destruction of the occupying forces there, and the enslavement of non-Israelites. This is an exceptional event in human history. Just as no nation has the right to kill the residents of a neighboring country, so no person has the right to enslave another. And the rest of the Old Testament teaches to that end. Number three, like polygamy, slavery is a sinful behavior that's regulated, not endorsed in the Old Testament. The example of polygamy should drive a stake through the pro-slavery argument. Here's what Wayland said. In polygamy, we find an institution sanctioned in the Old Testament, which is wrong in itself <clears throat> and therefore forbidden by our Savior in the New Testament to them and to all men. So again, progressive revelation. And number four, the New Testament never tolerates slavery, and its principles demand slavery's demise. In other words, if we take the commands of the gospel to repent and believe, and we take the demands of the gospel. What does it mean to live as Christ? What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to live holy lives? What does it mean to live in family? What does it mean to treat one another as brothers and sisters, etc.? What does it mean to treat one another as those who uh, share the image of God with us? All of these demands of Christianity would naturally eliminate slavery. It becomes impossible to be practiced by Christians. Which then begs, I think, a fourth question. Can we make specific moral pronouncements on matters that Scripture does not directly or at least very obviously address? In other words, do we have the ability, the right, the basis, the foundation safely to be able to say as Christians, that's wrong, that's immoral, even if someone could say, but Jesus never said anything about that or the Bible doesn't address that? And the answer is yes. Yes, we absolutely can. Because as Christians, as students of Scripture, we take the whole counsel of God into consideration. We look at multiple principles regarding the rightness or wrongness of a thing. We look at its value, its prudence, its helpfulness. We look at its ability to grow us spiritually in the image of Christ. Its ability or inability, its effect on loving one another. Its effect on our relationship with one another. Its effect on our witness. Can we glorify God in this? We take the whole counsel of Scripture into consideration. And the reason I tell you this point has very practical ramifications. We're living in a time that we're finding people discovering new and novel ways of sinning. And one of the arguments we hear in our, our culture today is, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Jesus never gave a sermon on transgenderism. Jesus never gave a sermon about men masquerading as women and playing sports or being in a locker room or being in a bathroom with your children. He never gave sermons on this. So does that mean we don't have the right to speak? No, because the Bible speaks to every moral or ethical or value or priority concern that will ever face us. We take the principles and we bring them to bear. So when someone says the Bible doesn't say anything about that, that's a poor foundation to start any argument. The Bible ultimately addresses everything. 
And so we apply every issue. So are we able to say, using other scriptures and other principles and bringing them to bear on the issue, say, but that's wrong. Well, he doesn't address that. No, but he addresses this and this and this. Jesus never addressed marriage. No, that's wrong. He addressed marriage emphatically. He affirmed the design of marriage in the very first public expression of Jesus' ministry when he performed the miracle at the wedding of Cana. What did he do? He echoes the words of Genesis. God gave a man and a woman. This is God's design from the beginning. And no one should separate them, for they're joined as one flesh. This is God's good design. So we can make those statements. Now, so let me give a summary real quick of some necessary information as we look to the background of this text. Again, hang with me. Okay, number one, slavery was ubiquitous in the first century. Some estimates run as high as one-third of the population in the Roman Empire was under the bond of, bondage of slavery. One-third. I read one commentary that said in the city of Ephesus, numbers could run as high as 40%. So when Paul's speaking to the church at Ephesus, he's speaking to its leader Timothy and all those Christians there, he's talking about a congregation that could have been as high as 40% in bondage, 40% in some form of servitude, bond servants, slaves. Now, as I mentioned before, slavery was both voluntarily, voluntary due to poverty, debt. What recourse would a person have in the first century if they couldn't pay their debts? They couldn't take out more credit cards. There was no declaration of bankruptcy. You could be imprisoned or you could work your way out of it as a bond servant to someone. You would bind yourself to them for a certain amount of time or until a certain amount of debt was paid. And so a large amount of, of slavery was voluntary. A large percentage was involuntary, and again, typically due to war. Slavery was rarely, if ever, racially based. The Roman Empire was multicultural. That was one of the challenges of the gospel. Those cultures sometimes didn't want to relate. They didn't want to connect with one another. They didn't want to coexist with one another. And that's the beauty of the gospel in the first century and in the 21st century. That God takes people who don't look the same ethnically, don't speak the same language, don't have the same backgrounds and cultures. And he takes these people who are very disparate and says, now you're brothers and sisters in Christ and you're part of a new family. The Old Testament acknowledges, as I said, the existence of forms of slavery. But instead of affirming it, much less commanding it, it governs it. And specifically prohibits a certain form of it. Consider Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's pretty clear. Deuteronomy 24, 7, the second law. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers, Deuteronomy, Exodus gives us the first set of God's laws, Deuteronomy the second, restating many of the first. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Clearly defined as evil. Consequences are emphatic and severe. And the act itself that's being prohibited looks a lot like American form of slavery. Absolutely forbidden in the Old Testament. The New Testament acknowledges the reality of slavery in the world, again, in the Roman Empire. But it condemns it for Christians. Remember, the Bible is not written primarily as a code book for social action. It's not written primarily as, as a guidebook for general behavior. It's the story of redemption and salvation. The message of the gospel would be that the work of God in Christ, transforming individuals and then families, churches and communities, and then cultures, brings about the kingdom of God. 
Consider 1 Timothy, verses 1, 9 through 10, a passage we looked at weeks ago. We may have missed this one word. The law is not laid down for the just, but lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. And now it begins to list. Who are the ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane? Those who strike their fathers and mothers? Murderers? Sexually immoral? Men who practice homosexuality? Enslavers? Liars? perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So again, that throws a blanket that completely covers all aspects of the entire Western institution of slavery. What the Bible governed was the bond-servant relationship. What the Bible governed was the reality of war and conflict. And as one historian wrote, the Romans typically took slaves from conflict as an alternative to simply slaying them. This is what the Bible governed. So the entire Western institution of slavery, which began with the capture of African slaves, included the passage to the Americas, clearly, directly defies the law of God, as does the widespread human trafficking today. It may surprise you to know that there are more people enslaved on the planet today than at any other time in history. The Bible speaks to that as well. But let's, again, we miss the forest for the trees. The text today, if you go back to the text, and let me read it because it's been a minute. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants. The text does not address slavery in general. The text does not address slaveholders in particular. The, the text specifically addresses those who were enslaved, right? You see that? He's not making a blanket statement about we shouldn't have slavery. By the way, here are the particular requirements of your church. Here's who gets to teach. Here's how people get to serve. Here's how you should treat those in leadership. Here's how you should relate to one another. Oh, and by the way, there shouldn't be slavery in the world. The point is to the reality of the conditions in which they find themselves, that 40% of them might have been enslaved. And to that 40%, which is a pretty big contingency of the congregation, this text speaks specifically to them. And understanding that simple point is key to understanding this passage. It's not a passage about slavery in general or even slaveholders. It's a passage to those who are in it in that moment. So with that in mind, I want to make two applications. Okay, all of that was set up for these two things that the text is primarily about. Okay, number one, my lot in life has absolutely nothing to do with my ability to honor Christ. That's the first profound lesson of this. You who find yourselves in the difficult position, the painful position, again, I'm not endorsing nor condoning the bond-servant relationship we find in the Old Testament or New Testament. I'm also not correlating, comparing it, or conflating it with American chattel slavery. Nonetheless, in that condition, should you find yourself in this position where you're having to give up your freedom because of poverty and debt, or because you've been enslaved against your will as a victim of conquest and battle, and you become a follower of Christ, how do you live in that way? Because human nature would say, when my life gets better, when things turn my way, when it's no longer like this, when this happens, then I'll start honoring God. Christ. And so we look at our life today, and we have to recognize that our commitment to Christ requires that we live biblically in all circumstances, not just in those 
fair ones or just ones. God's honor supersedes our rights. Now, why am I telling you that? Again, this is not just distant, disconnected theology. You're in a situation right now, if this describes you, and it's just not good. How could I be treated like this? How could they have let me go? How could I be experiencing this? How could I be dealing with this? Why am I going through this? Whatever that situation is, this passage makes emphatically clear that when you come to Christ, the values of your life are so transformed. The purpose of your life is so transformed. It's not about you anymore. And so here's the profound statement being made. You know what? If you find yourself a slave, it's not an endorsement of slavery. It's the reality of this. If you find yourself in this condition, live in a way that honors Christ. I hope that we will continue to do all that we can possibly to eradicate slavery everywhere. But in your worst circumstances, at your bottom point of life, when nothing is going your way and every pain has come your way, our responsibility to Christ so that, listen to the text again, listen to the beginning. What's the point of it all? So that the name of God and the teaching, the truth, so that the name of God and the truth may not be reviled. That, circle that, that's my ultimate responsibility. I have to live my life under any circumstances so that God's name won't be reviled and the truth won't be reviled. People can't mock the truth and people can't mock my God. Now that bears up right to the life that you're living. I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand why I have this diagnosis. I don't understand why, why my child has to deal with this kind of suffering and pain. I don't understand why you name it. You list the infirmities. You list the problems. You list the conditions. You list the circumstances. And here's the bottom line. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, honor God. Make sure that God is honored no matter your status in life, no matter your situation, no matter your circumstances. God's honor is first. His honor supersedes your rights. One of the most dangerous things that we do as Christians is that when and then thinking. You know, well, when this happens, then I'll start this. Then I'll start honoring God. Then I'll start this. Then I'll be in church. Then I'll, then I'll serve. Then I'll find something to do. Then I'll talk with my neighbor. No, it's in the context of your life right now, honor God. Number two, Paul was teaching them a profound implication of the gospel. Again, this is why I think that Paul's ultimate aim, rather than trying to undo all the broken systems of culture and society, the brutality of emperor worship and leadership under the Roman Empire, the reality of slavery and all of its horrific effects on millions of people and so many other societal ills, he wanted to introduce the life-transforming power of Christ and the gospel. And in the local context, in a church, this is the reality. Conversion transforms every relationship into that of family. And we have to act accordingly. We have to live accordingly. You want a blanket statement of how you should be towards one another? Rich or poor? Black or white? Educated, uneducated? Young or old? New or veteran, family. That's your brother, that's your sister. Act accordingly. How will I love my brother? How will I love my sister? How will I treat the older woman as my mother, the older man as my father? How will I treat that younger woman as my daughter, that younger man as my son? How will I treat those peers as my peers, my brothers and sisters? How will we live as family? And that transforms every relationship. That's the blanket statement of every Christian relationship. How should we be to one another? Family. That's it. And think about the good that that does us as Christians. Think about the need that that, that that meets in this world. 
Think about how that resonates, the chord that that strikes with human need. Isn't that what people long for because God made them long for that? That they would find real family, that they would find real community, that they would find love and acceptance and encouragement, accountability and support, help in times of need, guidance in times of confusion, correction in times of error, and that together we would be family. So there's some implications from this, from that text. Those who have believing masters, don't be disrespectful on the ground they're brothers. Serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. What does that tell us on a practical level? Here's something simple for you to take away. Being a Christian boss, if that describes you, that ought to be an obvious benefit to all who work for you. Everybody who works for a Christian boss one ought to know that they do, that my boss is a believer, and they ought to see the benefits of it. Your unbelieving employees ought to know that it's better working for you than working for someone who doesn't believe in Christ. There ought to be some differences there. A believing boss should be a benefit to everyone who works for them. Honesty, integrity, fairness. And how should a believing boss treat those employees that he or she has that are Christians as family? brothers and sisters. It doesn't diminish the employee-employee relationship, but it sure does transform it when I see those people's brothers and sisters in Christ, family of God. By the same token, being a Christian worker, if you're a Christian who works for somebody, and somebody else is signing your checks, you ought to be an obvious blessing to those who employ you. Your, your boss ought to prefer not out of obligation, but because of your attitude, your production, your honesty and integrity, he ought to prefer to hire Christians because he knows that Christian is going to work hard, is going to, do, is going to be honest, is going to treat people fairly, is going to represent Christ. These ought to be the trickle-down effects of all of this. So here's this big picture. We want to know as we look at this text, wait, hold up a second. Does the Bible endorse slavery? To say it does is mistaken. And it represents not a serious consideration of the text at all. Does it recognize the reality of that sort of suffering in the world, both in Old Testament times and in the first century times? Yes, it does. What do we do in those circumstances? This is how we relate. We relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Should our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ eradicate this among Christians? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we can't love one another. I think, wait, um, I, I think his, his arguments were exactly sound. Wayland's arguments were still viable today, are still viable today. What do we do as Christians now who don't have these sort of relationships but do have these hierarchies among us? We work as servants of Christ. We honor Christ in all that we do because that's most important. That God may not be reviled and his word, his truth may not be reviled. I'm going to give you one final consideration before I wrap up. I want to go back to Edwards for a moment, Jonathan Edwards. Now, I've already stated that Edwards was wrong on his essential position on slavery. Again, it was based on wrong understanding, interpretation, I think, of Old Testament text. His premise was basically simple, trying to do what he thought was biblical. He misappropriated wrongly compared what he saw in his time with what existed in biblical times and not finding an emphatic New Testament statement against it, denying it, 
He accepted its reality even as he worked for a better version of it. Would we accept that today? No. No, absolutely not. It was a glaring blind spot, I think, on his part. But he was right on this point. And I want to give him credit for being the deep thinker who thinks out the implications of every position probably better than most, if not all, of us do. Because this was his statement. If it's wrong to participate in the system immediately, then it would be wrong to partake in it remotely. You know, if I surveyed us today anonymously with just a simple one-question survey, is slavery wrong? I would expect, and hopefully so, that 100% of the respondents would say, yes, it's wrong. And if this were to be an essay question, I, I would hope that the majority of us could give some biblical case, even based on the limited information I've given you today, as to why it's wrong. But I want you to consider the ripple effect here for a moment. If it's wrong to participate immediately, it would also be wrong to partake in it remotely. I started thinking about this with a new pair of Nike shoes that I still have in a box. The diamond ring on my wife's hand. The lithium batteries in my lawn equipment or your electric car. The sugar cane harvested for the bowl on my table the fish in my freezer, gold, oil, bananas. You begin to look down the list of so many commodities in our world today that come our way because of slavery. Again, this study just took me down so many rabbit holes, and I read so many nations where people are enslaved against their will, mostly children, or the uneducated, or poverty-stricken, working in, in bond servant conditions, slavery conditions, and it ripples through every a part of us. Um, you and I have to wrestle with that. How do we work for right living and right conditions and freedom and justice all over the world? I don't have the answer to that today. We have to be careful of all those things and its implications, but there's one more insidious sin related to this topic that we have to address. I think more dangerous, more deadly, more demonic, even than all those things we've mentioned. Human trafficking is one of the biggest travesties that still exists in our world today. When, when I said that there are more people in slavery today, this is what I'm referring to, modern-day slavery. Sex trafficking is a subset of human trafficking. It's the fastest-growing criminal business in the world. Sex trafficking is the third-largest criminal in enterprise in the world behind drugs and weapons and pornography, especially child pornography, continues to grow in our culture today. Pornography is a $100 billion business. Those who are profiting from producing pornography are using trafficked men, women, and children, and they will continue to do so. This is from Life Impact International, an organization aiming to end the horrors of pornography. What many do not realize is, is that there is a cyclical relationship between pornography and human trafficking that is creating an ever-increasing problem in the United States and around the world. Many of the actors involved in making pornographic images are victims of human trafficking. They're being forced through violence, fraud, or blackmail into the industry, and they cannot escape. One in five pornographic images online are of a child. More than one-half are of teenagers under the age of 18. 
This, by very definition, is human trafficking. Pornography stimulates the desire to act out pornographic scenes, which leads to an increase in demand for prostitution and child prostitution. Pornography is quite literally advertising for sex trafficking. We think about Edward's implications, and he was burdened with the guilt, not only that I might have a slave, but that I might wear a shirt made by cotton from a slave. How many of us consider that if you're viewing pornography, you're participating in the most pervasive, most destructive form of human slavery in history? And it's not innocent. And you are culpable. And for the 100% of us, it will say slavery is wrong. But yet I would view the most damaging and destructive images on my computer. The destruction that it's caused for those participating, but the destruction it's causing for those who watch. I'm hearing more and more and more conversations. Young men who aren't ready for marriage because they're addicted to pornography. Young men who are going to struggle, not only in the first years, but in every year of marriage because of a wrong view of sex. Teenagers who aren't being educated at home about sex. They're being educated by their peers. And when I say teenagers, I mean, I mean pre-teenagers, 10 and 11 and 12, because you put cell phones in their hands and you have no idea what's on their cell phones. I tweeted a quote from a mom from Twitter the other day, that if you don't know what's on your children's cell phones, you don't know your children. And I would extend, unfortunately, to things outside of your control a bit. If you don't know what's on your children's friends' cell phones, you don't know your children. And not only does this fit in the context of this, are we against slavery? Then why would we participate in an industry that enslaves millions and millions and millions? And not just the millions who are physically involved in the acts, in the videos, in the images, but enslaves hundreds of millions more spiritually, morally, and puts them in bondage to the worst sort of sin. You know, we can look at a text like 1 Timothy chapter 6 and have all of our questions about slavery, and it's easy for us to say, oh man, they missed the mark, and they did. Slavery in America was wrong, and it was, and totally ignore the ways that you and I might participate in the worst sort of sins happening on our planet today. And so I say this to you, if any of you listening to this today are viewing, watching, participating in any way, repent, repent, seek the forgiveness of God, seek out accountability and help, do all that it takes to be free, whatever that involves. It's worth your life, it's worth your soul, it's worth your family, it's worth your friends, it's worth your relationships, it's worth the health of your church. This is an issue that we cannot lose on. We're losing too many of our people already. Let's not give way to slavery. Will you pray with me? Father, you have set us free in Christ. and You've commanded us to not be bound again by a yoke of slavery. Father, there are so many implications to wrestle with here. Father, I pray that each of us would work diligently to be free. I pray that each of us would care passionately and work feverishly for the freedom of others. I pray that as a church family, we would learn to treat each other with love and with respect as family. 
And Father, on this specific issue in which I closed, I pray for deliverance. I pray for the moms and dads dealing with this at home. I pray for those ignorant of what might be happening under their own roofs or under their own noses. I pray for those marriages suffering right now, unhealthy and unwhole because of this. I pray for those young men already captive, enslaved by the enemy, so unprepared for a healthy life, a healthy marriage, a healthy family. I pray for those burdened by, by guilt, unable to serve well or in a healthy fashion because he can't escape this bondage. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction today. I pray that real repentance would be granted us today with heartfelt confessions being made. And I pray, Father, we would go far beyond feeling guilty to, Lord, by your strength, led by your Spirit, empowered by your power that works in us, that same mighty power, your word says, that brought Jesus back from the dead would deliver us. Father, I pray that we'd find real accountability, real help. I pray that we would deal with sin seriously. Father, we would not contribute to the slavery of another, and we would not enslave ourselves. Father, I pray that as sins are confessed, forgiveness would flow. We are great sinners, but you are a far greater Savior. Overcome our sin with grace and mercy today. Forgive us and free us. And may we labor to work alongside your spirit to keep one another free, to keep ourselves free for your glory. And Lord, we look forward to that day where the only ruler over any of us is Christ Jesus himself. The one perfect ruler, absolutely good and just, the sovereign king. We long for that rule. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.